0: It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Levy. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, how are we doing, Joseph, on our keynote? Uh, we are... Uh, enjoying our Friday edition of Daily Thunder. And uh, for those of you that are visiting today and are wondering how we ended up at uh, part eight of a series already, and you're just hearing the first part, uh, this is on lessons from World War II, which is an interesting thing to dig spiritual truth out of. Uh, I think uh, one of my favorite things is to study history and to reflect upon how that teaches me. It's one of the reasons I love biography. It's one of the reasons I uh, love to study history. I, For whatever reason, am strangely fascinated with war history. If you hang around me, you'd recognize I'm not a violent guy. I don't really desire to head off to war and shoot someone. Uh, however, I am extremely fascinated by the nature of battle uh, because it trains me in how to stand for Jesus Christ in my own soul and how to engage against the spiritual enemy that I have. And so this series has been a truly profound one. Uh, and where we're at in the process, it's like if you were to ask me, are we actually going to go through the whole war? Because the war just started technically, and here we are in part eight. Uh, we are So much of what intrigues me about World War II is what leads up to World War II. In other words, as, as Hitler would call it, the unnecessary— oh, Hitler would call it. I don't care about Hitler, what he has to say— Churchill would call it. He calls it the unnecessary war. It's the war that is actually did not need to be fought in the first place. And so many of us fight a war that is unnecessary. There is a necessary war. There is a real battle and an engagement but there are, there is ground in our soul that we can give over to the enemy and we have to take back. It is an unnecessary battle but we still need the weapons of warfare that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds so that we can engage. So in the very beginnings of the war, uh, what we're going to understand historically is Germany is the bad guy uh, in World War II. They would be symbolic and, uh, you know, it could seem mean to Germany to call them the kingdom of darkness uh, in World War II, but that's, that's in a, a grand picture of what they are. There are great people in Germany. As we went through one of our previous messages, uh, we were going through the Confessing Church the 150,000 Christians that stood against uh, Nazism and the darkness that was coming into their land. It is not the absence of light in Germany, it's the fact that there was a great presence of evil. And so that presence of evil is beginning to press its bounds to see what the uh, opposition would do, to see what the allies, uh, what Great Britain, what France uh, would do, and they did nothing. And so they uh, began to build a military. They were not allowed to build a military, according to the Versailles Treaty. And so they were limited to 100,000 standing army, which sounds like a lot. 100,000, that's a lot. Well, they had 6 million at the end of World War I. So you're talking about a massive decrease from 6 million to 100,000. They're not supposed to be able to fight again. That's what the Versailles Treaty is attempting to say. And that's what the cross did. The cross eliminated the power of the enemy. And yet when the enemy then stands back up and says, but do they recognize that I'm defeated? Because if they don't recognize that I'm defeated, I'm going to take territory that is not mine to take. It is a legal territory for the enemy to be claiming. But just like squatters rights, if the one who owns the land does not exert their authority, that person, in a sense, claims this somewhat strange version of property management. It's like, no, well, they don't say anything about it, so I guess this is mine. And that's what we see happening in World War II. So he doesn't just build an army, but he moves into territory that he's strictly forbidden from taking. And that's called the Rhineland. And that's the eastern side of the country of Germany, which aims towards France, which is Germany's mortal ally. And they have fought war after war after war throughout the ages and generations. And so what do they do? But they move into the Rhineland to see if anyone will respond. No one does anything. France doesn't do anything. In fact, France appeals to Great Britain and says, we have to do something. And Great Britain uh, says, if there's even a one in 100 chance that war would break out, we will not support such a move. They were so afraid of war that they did nothing. And this is the way many of us are in our own souls. Where when the enemy moves, when he operates in his chicanery uh, in his uh, nefarious way, we have a tendency to... Allow him territory, lest a greater challenge come our way. Then he moves into Austria. Nothing is done. Then we end up giving him the Sudetenland in exchange for peace, and then he takes Czechoslovakia. Nothing is done. And then as World War II starts, it's because Germany takes Poland. And, however, Germany had taken a lot of stuff before that. The fact that we finally rise up to do something as the Allies, or we could say the good guys... Than is a sad tale. So more happens uh, in World War II, but where we're at right here is there's something called the Twilight War. After Germany invades Poland, well, they do take Norway, and there's some some little skirmishes taking place, but it's basically a passage of close to six months where nothing happens. And so, you know, ships are blown up by mines, but it's it's like a naval war. There's really not a lot of war as we would understand it, And so it sort of almost begins to put you to sleep. It's like, I don't know, is anything ever going to happen? And then one day on May 10th, 1940, Germany explodes into all-out war. And they go into Belgium and Holland and just crush them in a day. I mean, just devastate them and begin to cascade into France. And France, you would think, I mean, France is technically ready for war, but France has not wanted to fight. France has been standing there, you know, saying, okay, we'll defend, but we will not attack. And when they're attacked, they just, like, give up almost. Now, I'm not saying all of them do, but you almost feel that. They, like, just collapse as a house of cards. And so it's typically called the Battle of France or also the Fall of France. I'm not going to teach you about the Fall of France. It's somewhat depressing. Uh, But I'm going to give you the reverberations of what takes place when you live in a world like we do today, when it would seem that that which you would be standing with disappears or collapses like a a house of cards. I remember when uh, David Wilkerson died. He died in a car accident down in uh, Texas. And I remember the distinct feeling that I had. And I mean, whether you agree with David Wilkerson or you're of the Pentecostal persuasion, at least one thing you could say about David Wilkerson, he's a man who lived what he believed and spoke it clearly. I mean, he was a very honorable man. And there was like an ache inside of me. And if I could give a term for it, aloneness (laughs) crept over me. This sense that I'm standing in a generation, at least I could always say, but at least David Wilkerson's out there hollering. Okay, and so I can just sort of say, yeah, you know, you just listen to him. I don't want to take the bullets. Shoot them at him. <laughs> and suddenly when he died, it was weird, but I felt like exposed to loneliness, to being by myself. And it's not true. It's like Elijah saying, oh, you know, I'm the only prophet left. Uh, you know, woe is me. And God says there's 7,000 that haven't been there and need a bail. It's, it's a common thing that we can feel as Christians. But not just as Christians, just in life. Loneliness is an interesting instrument uh, in our life. And what's going to happen here is Great Britain has one ally. (laughs) Really, if you want to look at it, one ally with any ability to do anything, and that's France. And France is going to fall like a house of cards. How do you think that makes Great Britain feel? Great Britain, this island nation that is not prepared for war, because of all the years uh, leading up to this, is suddenly engulfed in this massive battle against an enemy that seems unstoppable. I mean, you could just imagine, you know, evil lurking on the other side of the English Channel and threatening, looking right down your throat, saying, you're next. You could just imagine the feelings that go with this. And what I'm describing isn't altogether different than what many of us feel today as Christians. We're looking around and there's this growing evil around us and we feel very much alone. And you know how many people that I have talked with that feel like they're the only one in their community that is like saying, but I want to stand boldly for Jesus. I want a church that is pure and, and is focused on Christ and his cross. I, I don't want all this other junk that is getting mixed into the church. I want us to be stout with a spine of steel. But I feel like I'm all alone. So I understand these sensations, these feelings, and what I want to do in this message is I want to put our finger on that and show the beauty of that as opposed to the misery of it. Because most of us, when we think about loneliness, you know, can only think of the negatives in it. And By the way, there are a lot of negatives in loneliness. However, just like suffering, you could focus on the miseries of suffering or you could focus on the fact that suffering can work amazing benefit in your life. Alone. Even the word sort of makes you want to sing, you know, one of those sad songs. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, all alone. The strange sensation of being all by yourself in a great, big, scary world. So there's something about that, and I know this feeling. I mean, I'm married, happily married. I have a family, and so how could I feel alone? It's, it's interesting because, you know, there are people that feel alone because they're single, right? And there's other people that are married, with children, and they feel alone, but it's different. It's a different form of loneliness. Oftentimes, it can even be ideological loneliness, where you're standing for something, you feel like you're the only one. And you, your wife and kids don't count <laughs> as far as making you feel like there are people standing with you. That, that doesn't count. It's weird, because the same thing. We could all be standing firm, but we feel alone together. Okay? You, if you're a, a, a band, a battalion of soldiers, and you're over in France surrounded by Germans... And everyone else has made it over on ships back to uh, England in the, in the escape of Dunkirk. You feel alone, and yet you're with a whole bunch. There could be you know, 3,000 of you, but you feel alone. So the feeling of alone is a very unique tension for us. It's different than any other tension you could ever feel. Loneliness is, a, is an unusual challenge. It's different than false accusation. It's different than physical pain. It's different than just being slapped in the face and mocked. It's, it's different. And it's acute. It, it, it is a challenge. It's a pain that is hard to describe. If I were to say, let's describe loneliness. So let's give some synonyms or some feelings that it ushers forth. I don't know. I don't want it. <laughs> Take it away, God. Solve it. You know, when you get to the holidays... Acute loneliness will creep over people to the point where they hate the holidays It's weird because someone will be like yeah, it's Christmas and they love Christmas My dad loves Christmas and he'll get his mood will even change over the Christmas holiday And you almost see it like he just has an extra energy in him and other people you watch him closely Something changes and you see them almost being crushed by it. They're that close to tears always you're like, what's the big deal? It's the season of what it symbolizes to them. You're gonna be alone. There is no one in your life that really cares about you. Everyone else has someone, but you don't. Okay? <laughs> I mean, these are these are unique challenges. Now remember, I, you, some of you were thinking, now, how is this showing me the beauty of loneliness? All you're doing is making me miserable, Eric. This is one of the key quotes in Leslie's in my life. So when Leslie, before Leslie and I were married. Leslie went and heard Elizabeth Elliott speak. And she said, and then we were talking on the phone, I was on a pay phone when I was at missionary school, and she said, I need to share with you a quote that Elizabeth Elliott said. Loneliness is a required course for leadership. You know, I, here it is, you know, what, 27 years later? I still remember that because it's been a defining quotation in our life. I was experiencing, at this time, loneliness of an exquisite form. I was a popular guy in high school. I was a popular guy in college. God lifts me out and sets me in a weird place, as far as I was concerned. I'm on the mission field. I'm surrounded by people that are not like me. And I felt alone. When I was supposed to be going back to, uh, I I was in this, I was accepted to Baylor University to continue my studies in uh, undergraduate studies to get into med school. And I felt like God said, no, go home to be with your family. So I go home to be with my family. I still remember one day in particular, I was on my knees. Everyone was gone from the house. All my friends, you could just sort of feel them laughing, like even hear them. They're laughing. They're poking fun at each other. They're doing—you know walking to the cafeteria, eating. They're playing ultimate frisbee in the park. And I'm not there. And I remember being on my knees with my face planted in the couch pillow, crying. Saying, God, could you take this away? This is too painful. I I don't know that I can handle being alone. Now, what's amazing about that moment, I remember it very vividly in my life, and I remember this quote very vividly, is God's response. You're not alone. You know, it's, it's so simple. And yet so profound. You see, human loneliness, when you do not have that depth of relationship that we are built for, we are. And when it's removed, it opens up an avenue for God to bring a whole new dimension of understanding into our life. He is there. And He has not left us. We have someone. We are not alone. And once I realized that, I tell you what, it changed my life. Because so many times over the years, I have been put in a position where it feels like I am all alone. And what do I hearken back to? I hearken back to this quote. (laughs) God's building me to stand even if I am alone. And I hearken back to the fact that, Eric, you're not alone. I am here with you. God's word. So let's just walk through some great moments of aloneness, okay? And you recognize that God has a mind. He understands aloneness. He understands what we're created for. And get this. We're not created to be alone. We're not. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Of course, we think of marriage with that, but I want you to just take the first part of that statement. God is observing something. He's observing a man who, Who is alone. And what does he notate? It is not good that man is alone. And so, one of the things that I will oftentimes say, you know, even here at Ellerslie, if you listen to my Christmas messages, you'll hear me even encourage the body of Christ to remember those that are this close to tears right now. You know that even now, it doesn't have to be Christmas season, that there are those out there in this world that feel utterly alone, they don't know Jesus. So could you imagine not knowing Jesus and not having anyone in your life and just experiencing how difficult that would be? I mean, It's one thing for us. We have Jesus, but they don't. And the acute loneliness, oh, it's a pain. In Ecclesiastes 4.11, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? Now, of course, that is talking about intimate love and and marriage relationship, but at the same time, there is a truth in that, and that is when you are together, there is warmth in life. Togetherness is a very special thing. That's why the holidays bring a unique warmth, even in, in the remembrance, when we think about Thanksgiving and sitting around a table with those that we love there's a special thing because we're designed for it God made us that way and so when it's absent I don't know if you've ever had a birthday by yourself now because you know as you get older you're like it's just a birthday it doesn't really matter but it's weird the devil will hop on the back of it and say no one cares about you and I I had this one birthday I don't even remember how long ago it was it was a long time ago but I I was grown up now, and it didn't matter if anyone remembered my birthday. I don't have to have get, get gifts. You know, That's that's immaterial to me. I'm bigger than that. And so God sort of tested me on that one. <laughs> and everyone forgot my birthday. And it was one of those things where my mom the next day is like, oh, Eric, I'm so sorry. Uh, and you know, you try, how can I make up for it? It's all right. But I tell you what, that day was challenging for me because I really felt forgotten. And alone. And those those are very unique trials for our life to see how we respond. We were designed for fellowship. So, in other words, aloneness is triggering something that is showing our design. We were actually made for fellowship. And that's why there is a pain or a difficulty in it. And a key moment in history Genesis 32 24, and Jacob was left alone and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day that man just happens to be god but this aloneness is probably one of the darkest most difficult moments of jacob's life if not the most difficult you have esau who is his sworn enemy his older brother who has declared that if he ever sees jacob again he is going to kill him so guess who is waiting he hears that jacob is on the move And headed towards the promised land. Just like you. You're headed towards the promised land. And yet what stands in the way? Oh, your arch nemesis. The firstborn Or the flesh. And that's what he's symbolic of. And he has 400 armed men. This is a dark moment. It's called the dark night of the soul throughout Christian history. And so God will actually allow us to get to this place. Because in this place, Jacob's name even means heel grabber. Which is a funny statement because... Heel grabber is exactly opposite of what he's going to become on this night. He is going to become the God grabber. He is going to let go of his first life, trying to do this and manipulate this in his own way, and he is going to grab a hold of God. This is a profound picture of what aloneness can produce in our life when we allow God to do what he needs to do. Loneliness is a dark night of the soul. Now, get this. I'm adding something to this because that sounds rather depressing, if that's all I say. It's just a dark night of the soul. But however, to the Christian throughout history, the dark night of the soul is actually right before the breaking of day. Hold on. Don't let go now. Until the sun breaks, don't let go. Loneliness, when received as a gift actually will break you in through the door into a stronger position in your life than you've ever known. However, most of us want to solve loneliness. We don't want to embrace loneliness. And as a result, we have a tendency to create what we call an Ishmael, instead of finding an Isaac, through our loneliness. We're in our own self-effort. We try and salve our loneliness instead of allowing loneliness to work in us a true depth of devotion unto Jesus Christ. So loneliness is a dark night of the soul, an open door into a deeper fellowship. Moses, I've had this same thought. I mean, you could almost say, quote, unquote, go through the head of Eric Lutie. So when I read it in Numbers, it's like, oh, wait a minute, who's he talking to? Is that me? I am not able to bear all this people alone because it is too heavy for me. I mean, you could feel that as a husband, you could feel that as a father, you could feel that in leading a ministry, you could feel that leading a business, you could feel that leading in civil government and leading a nation. You see, this is something that is common to anyone who is given an assignment. You know, one of the key principles of life is to recognize that God is not against giving you things that are too heavy for you, but they're not too heavy for him. He never tests us beyond what we can bear, but The way we bear things up isn't in our own strength in the Christian life. It is by the power of God. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength and the power of his might. Our secret is that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Our strength comes from him. However, it's it's not that abnormal for us to say, I am not able to bear all this people alone. I'm not able to bear this Lord Alone. And what does the word of God say? What does the gospel teach us? Um, You're not alone. I have given you everything you need for life and godliness. Oh, by the way, this this story that I was just going through is extremely fascinating. Not that it, I don't know if it helps you learn about being alone and how to handle it. But it is fascinating that God hears this and gives a solution. Uh, But the solution is very unique he is going to pick 70 men of Israel that he is going to stick he's going to take from the spirit that is upon Moses and put it upon 70 elders of Israel so that they can share the load isn't that just a fascinating statement god hears this he understands it jesus was alone but not alone You know, one of the disciplines of Christ's life was to go off alone. If you study it, you're going to see it all over the place. He deliberately chose to be alone. Isn't that an interesting statement? It's like, well, I thought it wasn't good that man was alone. Well, it isn't, but he wasn't alone. In other words, part of the discipline of Christ was to separate himself from human fellowship so that he could exercise the spiritual man that he was. And what he is doing for us is he's showcasing for us the importance of aloneness in the development of leadership, in the development of the strong life that lays itself down for others. There is something very, very significant about aloneness. Jesus was alone, but not alone. So here's Jesus in John 8, 29. He that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. He makes it sound so easy, doesn't it? Is that your attitude when you go through aloneness? Sort of like Jesus, uh, remember when all the disciples go off and get some lunch, and then they come back and they're like, oh, you need to eat. You know, I have food that, you, that others know not of. It's like, what? Where do you get that from? You see, we could look alone and someone could feel bad for us You know, as we go off to the mountain, and we spend a week just with God. It's like, I just felt like I should come up and give you companionship. No, I have companionship that others know not of. You see, we do have a companion. We have one that is closer than a brother, and he is always with us. This is a great quote here. John 16, 32. Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet... I am not alone, because the Father is with me. So, what we see is just like Adam in the garden, just like Jacob, neither of them are alone. It is not good that man, remember Jesus is the last uh, Adam, or the second man. He is that picture. It's not good that he is alone, and he will not be alone. You see, he is not left alone without the Father. The Father is with him. The same is true for us. When we enter into those trials of trials, the Father is with us. The Spirit of Christ is with us. We have someone there. The exercise of aloneness, the training of utter dependence. If if someone is teaching you the deeper life with Christ, one of the things that they're going to say is, you need to spend alone time. You know, and at first you're thinking, okay, yeah. But some of us, that's actually not hard. Some of us, we need to spend body time (laughs) because we have a tendency to have the opposite problem. But it's actually critical that you exercise aloneness. Aloneness is a part of the training of the believer that we need to exercise fellowship with God, which is hard to exercise when you're in fellowship with others. So as a result, as part of the key discipline in life, it's important that you separate to gain that strength, to exercise that fellowship, to exercise that communication with God as opposed to just the communication with men. They both matter. However, it is a key part of the strengthening of the believer. Remember, loneliness is a required course for leadership, as Elizabeth Elliot says. When you are in leadership, It's interesting, and I've even said this uh, about uh, classes at Ellerslie. It's like, if I could just come and be a student there, I could speak to the students completely different than I can as a leader. As a leader, I can speak to you in a way that I couldn't if I was a student. But it's interesting, the moment you become a leader is the moment your relationship changes with those around you. And now I can't relate to you the way I could if I was just staying in the dorms with you and I was one of you. And so as a result, it's an interesting tension, and it causes you as a leader to feel alone because actually you are. You're alone in your position, and everyone can usually blame the leader for all the problems. So if they're disgruntled with what's going on, well, then they, it's called stick it to the man. Uh, in other words, hey, it's that guy. He's the one in charge, and so as a result, you take a lot of heat being in leadership. Leadership is a lonely, uncomfortable, rather miserable position. Why in the world do we all want it? (laughs) Isn't that funny? It's like, oh, I'd love to be a leader someday. Well, just make sure you you, you understand what leadership is. (laughs) If you ever study being a shepherd, a shepherd is the worst job in all of Israel, bar none. These guys have it difficult. Okay, it's funny that God is going to use that term to describe those that lead in the church. If you are going to be a leader, you need to be a shepherd. Are you willing to sleep outside with your sheep and stay alert all night long? Because your job is to protect those sheep from wild beasts. And when do you think they're more likely to come than any other time when you're sleeping? So as a result, you need to be constantly vigilant and watchful. That's a miserable way to live your life. So it's raining and guess what? You don't have a house because you're out in the pastures. So you find a cave and you sleep with a rock as a pillow. You live on constant alert mode. And no one ever thanks you if the sheep are alive. They only get mad at you if a sheep dies. I mean, come on, talk about a thankless job. You keep all the sheep alive and everyone expects that. But you lose a sheep and then everyone's mad at you. All right, welcome to being a shepherd. And yet there's no more noble position on all earth than to be chosen of God, to be entrusted with the care of sheep by God himself. However, to do that, you need to learn how to live alone. A shepherd is a lonely lifestyle too. That's the other thing about being a shepherd that is very acute in its difficulty. It's lonely. So the exercise of aloneness, the training of utter dependence. Here's what I'm gonna say. Out of aloneness can come forth the greatest strength in your life. If you will receive it and cultivate it and exercise it instead of complain about it. Okay? And try and self-solve the issue. So there we are. This is called the fall of France. And uh, in May 10th, 1940, disaster is going to strike. On Sunday, uh, in Sunday's message, I'm going to go through from a different angle on May 10th. Okay? From, the, from the side of Great Britain and what's happening in Great Britain at this exact time is extremely intriguing okay? What is happening as far as on the individual level with Winston Churchill, extremely fascinating to me as a man and as a leader. And so I'm going to hit that from a completely different angle on Sunday. But the French collapse is going to begin on May 10th, 1940. So World War II starts in the fall of 1939 with Germany invading Poland, twilight war for around six months, and then we have the fall of France, which is going to start with the collapse of Belgium and Holland as well. Shockers, because they were neutral countries, and Hitler is literally going to just ramrod uh, them. He's going to just destroy them. The evil that was shown, Belgium and Holland cannot fathom evil like that. They've ne- they would have never dreamed that Hitler would take two neutral countries and stomp them into fine powder. And yet, he really doesn't care about them. He's after France. He wants to get back at France for the Treaty of Versailles. He wants to shove it down their throat. And this is, I mean, this is uh, the march of evil. There's no doubt about it. So Winston Churchill, about half past seven on the morning of the 15th, I was woken with the news that Monsieur Renaud was, I can't say French names very well, so forgive me if you speak Renaud, Monsieur Renaud, you almost feel like I need to clip my nose and speak with nasal uh, sounds. He's the uh, prime, be the equivalent of the prime minister of uh, France, was on the telephone at my bedside. So, this is five days after the war has begun, the attack on France. He spoke in English and evidently under stress. Now, I can't speak with a French accent, so I'm just going to give you an American accent of this French statement. We have been defeated. As I did not immediately respond, he said again, We are beaten. We have lost the battle. I said, Surely it can't have happened so soon. Remember, World War I started with the attack of Germany on France. And I tell you what, there were many moments when it looked like France was going to fall, but France stood for four years. I mean, even seemingly supernaturally, right? This is five days. And you can just imagine Winston Churchill, who, by the way, has come into his position as prime minister five days earlier. Okay, so this is how he starts. This is what this guy is walking into, but I don't want to steal the thunder from my Sunday message. Okay, because it's pretty profound when you look at it from what he's going through on his side. Surely it can't have happened so soon. But he replied, the front is broken near Sedan. They are pouring through in great numbers with tanks and armored cars. See, this is a dark moment, not just for France but for Great Britain. Great Britain has one ally because the United States, for political reasons, they want peace. They don't want to engage in foreign affairs. World War I uh, is not a positive memory in any of their minds, but America's on the other side of the ocean. This isn't their business. The stuff that's going on in Europe, hey, it doesn't bother us. Just, where they're trying to turn a blind eye. They're trying. Franklin Delano Roosevelt is having a tough time turning a blind eye because he recognizes the ramifications, but he is coming up for re-election. And right now the nation will vote him out if he stands for war. So you can just see the politics in America are very interesting. So what does that leave Winston Churchill in Great Britain? Alone. Okay, this is like aloneness of the most, uh, highest magnitude. Because they're just an island country and suddenly, all Europe is swarming. Italy is leaning at this exact moment of siding fully, like deciding on war against France and Great Britain. They're not siding with, they were allies in World War I with Great Britain and France. But now, they're like, I think we're going to go with Hitler. So, this isn't looking good. This is a dark moment. The question about our ability to go on alone, which I had asked Mr. Chamberlain, who was the Prime Minister before uh, Winston Churchill, Neville Chamberlain, to examine with other ministers ten days before, was now put formally by me to our military advisors. Okay, guys, let's look into this. Can we stand alone <laughs> well, uh, against this threat? This is a speech to the House of Commons, may thirteenth, nineteen forty. This is you're gonna see the resolve of this man. This is an extraordinary thing. Remember how I said aloneness brings about a decisiveness within the soul, a clarity to who you are, what your position is in Christ, the dependency that you have on Christ, and the fact that you need something other than yourself to make it, and that he is your sufficiency. When you turn to Christ in that aloneness, it's amazing, but you recognize that his grace is sufficient. I have nothing to offer but blood toil tears and sweat. So this is when he is actually being uh, approved by the House of Commons to be prime minister. This is his speech. They want to know what his policy is, okay? So if you're going to be prime minister, convince us that we should vote for you, that we should affirm what the king has given you a commission to do. You ask what is our policy? I will say, it is to wage war by land, by sea, land and air with all our might, and with all the strength that God could give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. Let that be realized, no survival for the British Empire, no survival for all that the British Empire has stood for, no survival for the urge and impulse of the ages that mankind will move forward towards its goal. But I take up my task with buoyancy and hope. I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. At this time, I feel entitled to claim the aid of all, and I say, come then, let us go forward together with our united strength. And you can hear the House of Commons. This is like a group that just recently was so divided, You've never seen such politics as in the last 10 years. Extreme division, like civil war within the nation of Great Britain. And suddenly, because, and I'm going to say, because of the aloneness, they are going to rally unto a, like, one man. And they are going to become a very formidable foe. And that's why in the previous message when I said the difference between 1939 to 1940. 1939, Great Britain has never been weaker. 1940... Never in all of Great Britain's history have they been stronger. That's like so extreme that it's hard to swallow. How could you go from maybe being the weakest you've ever been in all your history to the strongest you've ever been in all your history in one year? Well, they were alone. They had to decide together what they needed to do. There's nothing that rallies the church, gets them to throw off their petty doctrines, than persecution. Nothing. Nothing. That's the number one thing that will rally the church together and cause them to actually say, you know what, I guess I probably should stand shoulder to shoulder with you, dear brother. (laughs) And maybe we should let go of some of these petty indifferences because we have a, a common enemy who is seeking to devour not just us, but the world around us. Let's do this together. So, this is to all British leadership, strictly confidential. This is a key moment. This is a dark moment in British history. In fact, Most historians, British historians, but you know, any historian will say that out of all of Great Britain's history, this might be one of the weightiest, darkest, most fearful moments that they've ever uh, gone through. Because what they see is their ally, their one ally, which is France, crumbling. And they're doing their best to hold it up. But it's worse than that. All of their troops, they have 100,000 soldiers, which is basically their entire standing army that is stuck over there in France, and can very easily be cut off, surrounded, and destroyed, which would leave them with no military support. So you can just imagine what this is feeling like, and this is what Winston Churchill says to the other shepherds of the nation, which are feeling a lot of pressure right about now. This is to all British leadership. Strictly confidential goes with the memo. In these dark days, the prime minister, who is Winston Churchill, would be grateful if all his colleagues in the government, as well as important officials, would maintain a high morale in their circles, not minimizing the gravity of events, but showing confidence in our ability and inflexible resolve to continue the war till we have broken the will of the enemy to bring all Europe under his domination. No tolerance should be given to the idea that France will make a separate peace. But whatever may happen on the continent, we cannot doubt our duty, and we shall certainly use all our power to defend the island, the empire, and our cause. The miracle of Dunkirk, which I I don't want to give away, I have another message that I may end up giving, which is called the Dunkirk rear guard, at least that's its uh, placeholder name right now, which isn't just on the Dunkirk miracle, which I don't know if any of you have ever studied uh, the miracle at Dunkirk, but I... It really is a profound picture of what we could call the body of Christ working together. And so as a result, I'm sort of holding it out there and saying, okay, that's a truth in and of itself. Whether or not I go into it, we'll see. But all the, the British troops are over there, and they're like surrounded. This is a very bad situation. And well, I, I don't want to give away what happens. Like spoiler alert. But at the same time, if you know the story, there is a miracle, if you want to say it that way, that takes place. There's 200,000 soldiers that are going to get across. It's going to include French that are going to get across the English Channel. The Germans have total confidence that even if they try and get across with their ability, their their dominance in with air power and the airplanes, that they're just going to bomb the living daylights out of these boats. And yet, almost every boat makes it across without being destroyed. And so 200,000 soldiers escaped from certain death. And Winston Churchill, in his best estimations, at the brightest, most optimistic moment, said if we could get 50,000 out, it would be a miracle. And so when they get 200,000 out, it's just like it changes the war, actually. And so what we see is this is quite the uh, thing that is taking place. However, they don't know this yet as they're going through all this. as They're seeing the failure of France. They're having to languish through this, but what is going to happen is some of the greatest miracles are going to happen out of this loneliness, out of this destitution, out of this state of uh, agony. So a public message to all Great Britain. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight in the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our, British, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle. Until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. He, he gave great speeches, by the way. Alone. So Winston Churchill has a collection of books called On the Second World War. And he redid those books and actually created his own abridged version, which is an interesting thing. I don't know that I've ever heard of an author actually taking a very long work and creating their own abridgment of it. And he did. And in the new abridgment of it, it's four books. Uh, and the second book is all about what we're talking about here, and it's called Alone. The whole book is called Alone. So Winston Churchill wrote a book called Alone. So I, I think it's fitting uh, that we say, yep, they were alone. June 25th is the official date when France is under the thumb of Germany, they have no ability to even wiggle anymore. It's done. And it's official, guys. Uh, Great Britain, you're on your own. After the first 40 days, we were alone. With victorious Germany and Italy engaged in a mortal attack upon us, with Soviet Russia a hostile neutral actively aiding Hitler, and Japan an unknowable menace. That's a great line, by the way. Can't you just hear the background movie score behind it? And yet, in this aloneness is going to come forth the greatest strength that Great Britain has ever known. They are going to rise up and defy this evil. They are going to recognize that something comes out of that loneliness that is supernatural. Now, what I want you to take out of this isn't history from World War II, is to recognize that loneliness though it is difficult though it can be fearful is actually a gift god didn't design us to be alone but when we are alone and we embrace that loneliness and we allow the spirit of god to exercise it in us it actually strengthens us for our task everyone realized how near were death and ruin not only individual death, which is the universal experience, stood near, but incomparably more commanding the life of Britain, her message, and her glory. Samuel Johnson, This is a, that guy is a little scary, I recognize. Uh, <laughs> that's the only picture I could get. Uh, but <clears throat> all of them were scary. There was like six options. They were all like hand-drawn. It's like, Egh. uh So that's the nice one. I think he was like probably, you know, preaching or, you know, in debates or something. They always got him somewhat angry. This is a great quote, though. Depend on it. When a man knows he is going to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. (laughs) And one of the things you can say about loneliness is it has an ability to focus you. When you are alone, you are able to focus. When you are around a mass of people and a mass of noise, you have a tendency to be distracted. And so it's interesting, just like knowing that your days are numbered, so it is when you are removed from the cacophony of society and you step aside into your closet of stillness that actually it sharpens your spiritual senses to be able to hear, to understand God. John 14, 18. And this is a key understanding that yes, you are alone. So if I was speaking to shepherds, leaders in the church, yes, there may be times when you feel alone, but you're not alone. Jesus says, it is better that I go to be with the Father. Uh, Are we missing something, Jesus? I think it'd be better if you stayed here. He says, but I'm going to send you a helper. You see, Jesus seems to be convinced that it's better for us to have the helper than him in bodily presence, which is a weird thought to, I think, most of us. I think we'd be fine having Jesus in bodily presence, right, in our mind. However, Jesus, who I'm going to trust his opinion on this one, says it's better for us that he goes to be with the Father because he is going to send us his very spirit to live inside of us so that even when we are alone, we will not be alone. Key line, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. You have not been abandoned. I know the enemy's whisper. You're abandoned. I know. I've heard it many times. When I'm in a dark, challenging moment, the enemy loves to whisper that I'm an orphan. That I'm left out of. Uh, like God somehow, he's taking care of everyone else, but he somehow overlooked me. And I mean, it's it's a very real sensation that you can have. This is the word of God, and I want you to stand on it. God will not leave us alone. He will come to us. He is with us. We are not alone. When we find those moments when we're on our knees and our face planted in the couch cushion and we feel that acute sense of human loneliness, we are not alone. In fact, if we leverage that very situation and we say, thank you, Lord, for this season of aloneness, God will take What is humanly difficult, just like that fertilizer that we talked about, manure is not something we naturally are attracted to, but when you take it and till it into the soil, it becomes a fertilizer to greater growth. So is loneliness. When you till that loneliness and cherish the gift of this season in your life or this challenge that you have, if you've ever been a leader and you feel estranged from those that you're leading and you feel misunderstood, well... Jesus is with you and he says, puts his arm around you, I've been there. There is nothing that we can go through in this body that he can't identify with. We have someone with us that understands our human weakness. And he desires to give us grace in those exact circumstances. Father, I want to declare afresh thank you for aloneness thank you for loneliness and thank you for what you do in and through it I also thank you that you do not leave us alone that you come to us and that you meet our needs in the way that only you can Lord I thank you for the way that you build your saints your way is perfect and Lord we cherish it this morning it's in the precious name we pray Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day. Week or an entire season of gospel centered spiritual training. Learn more at Ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.